Welcome to Something Came From Baltimore. I am your host, Tom Gowker, and today we are talking via Zoom to the legendary trumpeter, Terrence Blanchard. We knew that the shutdown with COVID-19 would allow artists to really hone in on their projects. And after the pandemic, we would see a wealth of material. Terrence Blanchard is one of those artists who's working overtime and the fruits of his labor are here to bear. In this interview, we are talking to Terrence Blanchard about four active projects. Presently, he is working on the Perry Mason season two reboot on HBO. Terrence just completed the score of the Spike Lee documentary called NYC Epicenter 9-11-2011 and a half which is an eight-hour series that will air later in the fall. Terrence Blanchard just wrote an opera, and it is actively running on the Metropolitan Opera House. The opera is titled Fire Shot Up in My Bones, and Terrence Blanchard is making big-time history by being the first African-American to present an opera at the Met for over, people get this, 138 years. And number four, the album called Absence is a homage to Wayne Shorter by Terrence Blanchard. It features the E-Collective and the Turtle Island Quartet. Absence was released on Blue Note, August 27, 2021. All I can say is wow. And Terrence Blanchard is an amazing interview. And if you want to see the full Zoom interview with Terrence, you can find that on Something Came From Baltimore on the YouTube page. Remember that Something Came From Baltimore is a podcast about music for music fans, and we would love you to subscribe, and we would love you to flip it to five people who love music just as much as you do, because we want you all to be a part of that Be More Music scene. First, let's listen to a sample from the album Absence. It's a Wayne Shorter classic that can be found on a Weather Report album. The song is called The Elders. you doing you look a little busy too yeah yeah it's crazy man but you know <laughs> it's, it, I, it's a good crazy you know what i mean yeah i do have a number for talk space if you need to talk to someone you know <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah that, 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 i may need that number bro <laughs> <laughs> so everyone has talked to you once in their life so i have talked to you before too okay uh, you're a comedian because I saw you at the Man Music Center, you with Angelique Kijo and, and Susanna yeah. Baca, and someone screaming up there to, that she wanted to marry you and have your baby yeah. and stuff. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> I mean, look, you know, they had to sneak me out of that center afterwards. Why? Because the, the, the woman came backstage and she was crazy. Really? She, yeah, oh man, yeah. I'm, I met her once before when I played in DC, and she was telling me how one of my albums, and I felt bad for her because she said her mom died 
and it must have triggered something in her because when her mom died, she was listening to one of my albums, Tell God's Will, over and over and over again, and it got her through. But, you know, when I saw her again at the Man Center, man, that was crazy because she wouldn't leave, and then she started making a scene, and they snuck me out and put me in the van and told me to lay on the back seat so she wouldn't see me. Wow. Yeah. I mean, because at first I thought it was cute at first. You know, I'm like, oh, that's nice. That's sweet. You know, thank you for that. But then when she came backstage, man, it I think her mom's death, like, really triggered a psychotic thing in her, you know, which is a shame, you know, because she was a nice person. You haven't seen her ever again? Uh, no. <laughs> no. <laughs> no. No. start with Perry Mason. You're on your second season. Your first soundtrack is amazing. You're at a time period when I was where Perry Mason, Gunsmoke, Bonanza, right. like we only had five channels or three channels. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> I'm about to say five. No, dude. I think it was like three. <laughs> yeah, it was like three. And so, yeah. you know, it was a... Because we, we never counted PBS. <laughs> no, because it was always blurred out. You can't see it. You know, you had to, yeah. you had to take right. the antenna outside and shake it around to see if you can get it, pick it up. One, did he ever smile? Did you ever remember him <laughs> smiling ever? You know what's, you know what's funny about that, man. You know, I've been on some Zoom calls with Matt, man, and, and when you see Matt in person, he is the total opposite of the character. This dude is like all over the place, cracking jokes, got a lot of energy, and I'm like, that's the mark of a great actor, because dude, you had me fooled. You know? Yeah, but I, I think Perry Mason screwed up the whole judicial system. You know, when Perry Mason was there. You're like, oh, my God, this is going to unfold. He's going to crack right. the case right there. Right. And he's right. going to solve the crime. And you, everyone wants right. to be in jury duty to see that. Don't you remember that? Beca it became a verb almost. We kept, there'd be, you know, people kept saying, we're waiting for the Perry Mason moment. You know what yeah. I mean? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. we're, we're wrapping up the, the Spike Lee's uh, HBO documentary on New York. It premieres in the fall. It's called New York City Epicenter 9-11, uh, 2011 and a half. Mm -hmm. I'm assuming it's about 20 years after the 9-11 time period. Well, I mean, yeah, it is. It's eight hours of a documentary. And actually, they kind of screened it on the anniversary of 9-11. They had like a, a limited viewing of it, I, I think, but just to mark the anniversary of that event. You know, listen, I, I've always said this. I think Spike doesn't get enough credit for being a great documentarian that he is. I've always been amazed at his documentaries, how deep he goes and how he organizes all of the thoughts and ideas. And this one is no different. There's a lot of stuff to cover when you start talking about from 9-11 to COVID-19. And he does it over an eight-hour period. And it's really remarkable, you know, when you watch it. I think it's something that's probably going to end up in the classroom at some point because it's so detailed. We were just talking about Perry Mason. So we had three channels. So the America had a collective interest. Everyone was watching the same show. Right. Now, everyone is spread out. Like there is, people are not watching the same stuff. They're not seeing the same thing. So this 9-11, everyone has such a short-term memory as to what happened. Just like the, the thing that happened here in uh, January 6th, that you almost have to show a documentary and say, look, this really happened. <laughs> like, it's like, yeah. 
people, this happened, you know? Right, right. Well, that's the thing that's interesting about it. You know, for those of us that lived through it, you know, we remember how horrible that whole period was because it wasn't just a couple of days or whatever. I mean, you know, I remember feeling sick to my stomach for a long time, you know, after that. And I guess we've gotten to this point now where we are the same as the people who experienced all the riots in the 60s when we were growing up. Because those things seem like such a far-fetched notion for me when I was a kid growing up. And then got when we got to the 80s, I was like, wow, man, that's something different. And then now I'm looking at this with these kids. My opera's here at the, at the Met, and there's some young kids in the in the production. And I think about them, and I go, man, they have no clue about any of that. You know, they, they don't have any relationship to it. But that's the reason why it's important to do these documentaries. Mm-hmm. You know, it's important to give kids a place to go and at least to get a sense of it you know i don't think they're ever going to really feel what we felt experiencing it experiencing it live but at least they could get a sense of how devastating it was i don't have a problem with spike lee i love spike lee i just think this bitcoin thing he needs a yeah uh, have a discussion uh (laughs) i think his documentaries are fine it's it's not new money it's something else (laughs) but i wanted to talk to you actually about the five blood the movie you were available for interviews for that soundtrack and i wanted to get a hold of you really bad because i just saw spike lee's master class and he was talking about what he does with you where when this movie starts or the idea or the concept of it i guess you're providing or you guys are having discussions about musical cues i guess for the main characters so yeah well he talks to me he just gives me a heads up i mean we were at the oscars man just celebrating everything that was happening with Black Klansmen. And he goes, all right, bro, I'm, I'm out. You know, I'm, I'm flying over. I forgot where they were shooting. He said, I'm flying over to so-and-so. And, uh, you know, I'm going to send you the script. I'm like, dude, you're not even going to take a break. <laughs> I know. You know, but that's the way he works. That's the way he, he gets excited. You know, I got the soundtrack before I saw the movie. I'm uh-huh. ripping through it. I'm like, oh, I'm going to talk to Terrence Blanchard. We're going to talk about this. Mm-hmm. I really thought we were going to have this Peter and the Wolf experience where these these characters are popping up and then this the theme of it and it was just it was very west wing it was very patriotic sounding and i'm like where is this connection then when i saw the movie i went okay it's all it's all making sense to me let's listen to a sample what this mission's about from the spike lee film the five bloods That movie with Red Tails, with uh, Miracle of St. Anna, I've always tried to, and I know it sounds corny, but I, I really believe it, man. When you run into guys who've actually been in combat and you hear their stories and they tell you how real it is and you start to experience it through their eyes, when you have a project like that, man, you just want to say thank you to those dudes, man, because I don't think the general public really truly understands what it is that they do, putting their lives on the line for our safety here back at home people don't get that you know no. we walk around and we get upset you know when our uber eats is late you know <laughs> <laughs> you know so to really understand that and for me just to say thank you i try to write music that 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 really tries to honor you know their sacrifice 
So you have this little thing going on at the Metropolitan Opera in New York. Just a small event. Okay, 138 years. Okay, my question is, I, I mean, I applaud you. I, I think it's fantastic, but why? You know, we knew that the well, opera... You know, yeah, I know the question. That That's a, that's a Met question. And I'm going to tell you, yesterday when I did this interview, I was being interviewed for, by CBS. They brought out this ledger that it, the, the, the records started in 1919. I didn't go through the whole thing because it's. I didn't want to really touch it that much because it's history, you know. Yeah. But in the ledger, man, you see a bunch of females' names of operas that were denied. And when you read the reasons why, it's just very elitist. And then um, what really just sent me over the edge was when I saw uh, comments about William Grant Still's operas. He had submitted three operas to them, one in 1920, one in 1935 and another one in 1939. And uh, I can't remember which one of the last two this comment was made, but there were two separate comments that were just outrageous. One of them said, you know, it seems to be song-like and amateurish, not suitable for the Met stage. And another one called them dilettantes who don't deserve to be at the Metropolitan. And it was funny because, you know, when we were reading all of these comments, you know, the guy who was interviewing me, he said, man, these guys are taking themselves a little seriously because in all of the comments, they write Metropolitan. It's like, but this is the ledger for the Metropolitan. You know, there's just this elitist air and everything. I can't answer the question about 138 years, but if I had to guess, it would be because of arrogance, ignorance and an elitist attitude like that because opera initially was music that was made for the masses i think it lost its way along the way where people started to act like in their art you know the public should come to them as opposed to them going to the public when you say arrogance i'm going to throw in racism there too a little <laughs> okay i mean right. that's a, that's the big one and you know racism and misogyny you know because i was shocked to see so many female names you know, because if you if you listen to them, just based on what they programmed, you would assume that there were no females who were interested in writing opera, and that wasn't the case. Here is Step Dance. It's a scene from Act Three of Fire Shot Up in My Bone. It's a biography of um, Fire Shut Up in My Bones. It's Charles M. Blow. And the, the sets, the visuals, the intensity is amazing. I cried at the promo because I figured out what the main plot was. And I have friends that had absentee fathers. I have two guys that told me stories in their life where they had absentee fathers. And with that, they became prey, more or less, yes. to adults who um, were aware of their vulnerability and kind of took advantage of that, which gave them a severe development of guilt and, yes. and anger and distrust for adults. And, uh, you know, to reconcile that, that's a dirty secret. So when I saw the one scene where they're standing together, I mean, I just started bawling. I was like, this is real life pain here that you're, you're talking about. Well, that's one of the reasons why I wanted to do this story. You know, I wanted to do it because 
it is a dirty secret, not only in the African-American community, but our community as Americans. You know, this has been going on, you know, with a lot of families and it needs to be exposed and people need to find help and get help. And the other part of the reason why I wanted to do this is because Charles is such a success. His success is a testament to his resilience and strength. And it lets people know when you see the opera and then you think about him in his current state, that anybody can overcome anything if you put your heart, mind, and soul to it. You know, you have to find help and have the courage to just maintain, you know, treatment or process you need to go through to get you, to make yourself better. And when we had the premiere in St. Louis, you know, I didn't allow Charles to uh, see the rehearsal. I wanted him to be surprised by the entire thing. And and the night of the premiere, man, I remember thinking that that was such a bad move. I'm mm-hmm. like, maybe he should have been here. But when uh, he came to the premiere and he saw it, I asked him if we were okay afterwards. He said, yeah, we're good. We're good. He says, because I realized that's not me anymore. And that was a very profound statement for me. And I went, see, this is why I wanted to do this. Because then he went on to write a piece about it. And then he wrote about uh, his reaction to it. And hopefully for people like your friends, this can be a motivating thing to help them get through that pain because it's a lasting pain it's not it's not something easy you know to deal with and i think there are a lot of us in this country that that fully don't don't really fully understand what's happening now i I believe that we we bumped up this interview because you had a hard interview at 11 45 like something that you couldn't okay so we got what six minutes (laughs) (laughs) so the real reason i called you is to is about absence which is the okay yeah Yeah. i i do jazz radio you know it's not (laughs) so we got this amazing thing that you did with uh, a tribute to wayne shorter you're Mm -hmm. talking about absence and uh, there's a paragraph in your bio talking about what absence is that you define yourself by the absence of what what's not within you or what is missing or what is missing in, in relationships and, 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 yeah, and in the world things. Yeah. I mean, part of our struggle in life is trying to fill that void. You know what I mean? And it's a beautiful thing when you get to a point in your life, like now I have two grandkids and you start to realize your struggle for finding something which right in front of your face the entire time. And it's the love of your family, you know, uh, nothing gives me more joy, man. When I have all of my kids around me, uh, I remember one of my birth for one of my birthdays, we literally didn't do anything. Just everybody just came over to the house. And that's part of the reason why I love that title. It's not my tune. It's David Ginyard's tune. He wrote it. But I understand exactly why he called it that, you know, because I'm at a point now in my life where things are, the, the meaning of things are shifting greatly. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's warmth. It's the soul yeah. warmth. That's what you were feeling. Your soul yeah. was feeling warm inside. And it felt good. Yeah. 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 Here is the title track from the album, Absent. is awesome the intro is amazing and then you rip it right into the full song it feels like you're like sampling uh, beethoven's fifth know, you know what? i didn't i didn't realize that man you know it's funny because it's like I a sample <laughs> yeah but i wrote the tune first 
right? Mm-hmm. And then we were in, in the studio, and I said, man, this thing needs an introduction. And then I went to write the introduction based off of the tune. And when I listened to it, I went, uh, this is, sounds like Beethoven a little bit. I didn't mean for this to happen like this, but yeah. It, it's high. It, 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 it's like a hip-hop, like, you know, orchestration. I thought, oh, he's, he's taking Beethoven and spinning it around and, and kind of sampling it. Check out the intro to I Dare You. The song I Dare You has a story to it. Uh, we're going to play that song in the interview. Well, yeah. I mean, you know, there's the whole idea of Wayne Short of saying jazz means I dare you. It means mm-hmm. to take a chance. And I think, you know, all too often we've gotten complacent with, and because listen, we got a vast history in this jazz world that we really want to keep sacred. I get it, you know, but the tradition of jazz is to break tradition. That's always been our tradition. Definitely. And, you know, Wayne has always encouraged me and other people to find, try to find our voice. So that was the reason why we did, when we did the album, we didn't want to just do an album straight and strictly of Wayne Shorter tunes. We wanted to do a combination of both to A, show Wayne how much he's had an effect on our lives in terms of composition and just to show him how much we love him, for sure. Here is a sample of I Dare You, the full song. It is Terrence Blanchard with the E Collective and the Turtle Island String Quartet. slim down it looks like you're uh, looking good and it's important because you're ready for the award seasons because you're gonna you're gonna be picking up a lot of them <laughs> you're gonna be at every award thing picking up an award somewhere oh, and, and including this album it's fantastic so um, thank you thank yeah you. It's, it's great to see you again uh terrence Blanchard. Good thank you, you man thanks for joining me on something came from baltimore <laughs> thank you bro I appreciate right, talk, it, man. talk to you later Thank you, Terrence Blanchard, for talking to me today on Something Came From Baltimore. Subscribe, share, and be a part of that Be More music scene.